0: Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital Volume 1 by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash harvey This episode is Class 3, Chapter 2, The Process of Exchange, and Chapter 3, Money or the Circulation of Commodities. This was recorded live Please be mindful, there will be some changes in volume.
1: Okay, so maybe we should uh, uh, get underway. So, welcome to the uh, third session uh, on Marx's Capital Volume One. And uh, I want to just make one very general observation about the chapters that we are into here. That what you see is Marx uh, engaging in a process of elaborating upon the meaning of certain concepts. There is, if you like, a sort of an evolution of the concepts. And this is a rather different strategy than often exists in studies where you get a fixed definition and it remains fixed right throughout. Well, this is a situation where the concepts do not remain fixed, they get evolved. And there is, in these chapters, a coevolution going on. And the coevolution is between the concept of value and that which represents value, which is money. Value cannot exist without, in uh, in its capitalist form, Uh, without money. But at the same time, money can't exist without that which it represents, which is value. So what you see is that Marx takes these two concepts and sort of starts to push on how to understand them uh, more clearly. And so the concept of money, which has already been introduced, is gradually evolved in these chapters, so the chapter on money itself is one further step in that uh, evolution. Now in chapter two, (coughs) Marx takes one step further in this co-evolutionary process and wants to look more closely at the process of exchange. And as he says, the process of exchange depends on the people doing the exchanging. And so he introduces the idea of buyers and sellers. He introduces uh, the idea that uh, there must be consent between the parties, there should be no coercion, Uh, there is a contract, there is above all uh, the the concept of private property and that uh, you're dealing with uh, owners and you're dealing with them in terms of a juridical relation. So in the first, in a sense, this chapter 2 Uh, is quite simply setting up uh, the institutional framework within which exchange will take place between buyers and sellers. And that institutional framework is the one which would be familiar to people who read Adam Smith or uh, any of the other classical uh, uh, economists. Uh, And in a sense, uh, what Marx does is to accept uh, the idea of a perfectly functioning market economy that uh, we're going to deal with uh, an exchange relation uh, and a a perfect uh, market situation. And he makes clear, of course, that in this perfect market situation it's not persons matter but the roles. And I've mentioned this before that Marx is interested in roles rather than persons and what he's interested in is the buyers and sellers operating uh, in what we would call a, a perfectly functioning market, uh, which is uh, based upon private property and juridical relations and reciprocity and exchange and all the rest of it. Now, there's an interesting kind of question as to why is it uh, that Marx would say, okay, I make the assumption, uh, which is a utopian assumption of bourgeois political economy of perfect, uh, perfect markets, and perfectly functioning markets. Why is he giving us, as it were, this framework? And why is this going to be the framework uh, for the rest of what follows in capital? Uh, because we know that markets are not perfect. We know that there's a lot of distortion in markets. We know there's monopoly power. We know that there are all kinds of things. But at the end of this chapter two, marx comes uh, i think to the conclusion uh which is that he's going to be dealing with a kind of a market which is on page 187. he says uh, men are henceforth related to each other in their social of production in a purely atomistic way their own relations of production therefore assume a material shape which is independent of their control And their conscious individual action. Now this is, in in a sense, Marx talking about what Adam Smith called the hidden hand. In other words, the hidden hand of the market is such that no one individual is in control. There is a lack of control. Now we've already hit this idea before, uh, way back when we were talking about Uh, this is back on page 167-68, where Marx talks about the way in which the magnitudes vary continually, independent of the will, foreknowledge and actions of the exchangers. Their own movement within society has for them the form of a movement made by things, and these things, far from being under their control, in fact control them. Now, the theory of the hidden hand that Adam Smith laid out suggested that it really didn't matter what the exchangers had in mind, that it didn't matter whether they were good people or evil people, and this was one of the debates about the utopianism of the market. For Adam Smith, none of that mattered, because the hidden hand of the market would end up producing a result which is independent of the wishes, desires, mental conditions, all the rest of it, of the exchanges. And this was Adam Smith's argument, and, and Marx is accepting this, which is a bit strange, and, uh, but then you have to remember the, the subtitle of Capital is a critique of classical political economy. And Marx is, in effect, saying, let's take the utopian vision of the market, which classical political economy was promoting, in order to get the state power out of the way and and all of the distortions that came from price-fixing by the state and so on. Let's get that all out of the way, said the classical political economists, and everything will be okay, everything will be fine. And Marx says, okay, I'll accept that bourgeois utopian vision of a perfect market. And then what we will do is we investigate the question, is everything going to be okay? And of course, what he's going to show is no, it won't be okay. In fact, uh, it will redound to the benefit of some people in society and, and, and destroy the well-being uh, of other members of society. In other words, what Marx is going to do is, is to say, let's accept the most perfect form of market that capital can devise and then see what happens. And what he'll show is that the Adam Smith assumption that that market would work to the benefit of all is wrong. But he's going to show it in Adam Smith's own terms. He's not going to say it's wrong because it mystifies and the market is all wrong. No, Marx is going to say the market is working in a perfect way. Now, there are occasions in Capital where he abandons that assumption, but the general argument he's making is of that sort. So, Chapter 2, therefore, sets up the conditions of a perfectly functioning market, which I think are. Uh, pretty easy to comprehend and pretty easy to uh, understand. Um, This chapter then is also about the way in which as the market becomes perfected, so it is absolutely essential that two things happen. First, money has to crystallize out of the exchange relations in such a way, uh, and this is what he, he sets out, uh, that the, what he called the universal equivalent in his argument in the preceding chapter uh, is going to be achieved through the, as he says at the bottom of page 180, only the action of society can turn a particular commodity into the universal equivalent. In other words, the universal equivalent is not something that's mandated by state power or invented in some way. It arises out of exchange practices. And those exchange practices in society conducted under the regime that he's already sort of described about private property rights and reciprocity and free trade and all the rest of it, that that the action of uh, in that society will have the effect of defining at a certain point a universal equivalent. And as he says on 181 money necessarily crystallizes out of the process of exchange. And this is I think important because what he's saying here is that that crystallization out is going to seize hold of any other form of money that might already exist in society and there are different forms of money which had existed historically, they're going to be absorbed within a very special definition of what money is about, which is the money which arises under capitalist structures of exchange. So, money necessarily crystallizes out of the process of exchange in which different products of labor are in fact equated with each other and thus converted into commodities. This is the historical part. The historical broadening and deepening of the phenomenon of exchange develops the opposition between use-value and value which is latent in the nature of commodity. The need to give an external expression of this opposition for the purpose of commercial intercourse produces a drive towards an independent form of value, which finds neither rest nor peace and until an independent form has been achieved by the differentiation of commodities into commodities and money. So we started with a commodity, which is a unity of a certain kind, and now there's use value and exchange value, and then value in the commodity, and now we're looking at a whole bundle of commodities of one sort in relationship to one commodity, which is called money. And then Marx says, at the same rate then as the transformation of the products of labor into commodities is accomplished. One particular commodity is transformed into money. Okay, So this is the coevolution, the evolution of the monetary form. Now in this exchange, if you go to the next page, 182, Marx introduces the following sets of relations, things are themselves external to man and therefore alienable. In order that this alienation may be reciprocal, it is only necessary for men to agree tacitly to treat each other as the private owners of these alienable things, and precisely for that reason as persons who are independent of each other. So we have the independence of the exchanges. We have the capacity of each of them to alienate the commodities which they control. And by alienation here, Marx simply means parting with, getting rid of. Rid of. And this he then goes into a little discussion about how historically this sorts, these forms of capitalist exchange might arise. And he talks about commodities exchange of commodities begins where communities have their boundaries and then he goes on to say the constant repetition of exchange makes it a normal social process now these one of the things that this means is that value only becomes value in its capitalist form under conditions where there is a constant repetition of exchange and exchange relations have become a normal social process so that the universal or social equivalent, as he as he calls it, arises only in the in the uh, in, in the conditions of further and further deeper and deeper uh, amounts of, uh, of of commodity exchange. And as he says at the bottom 183, the same in the same proportion as exchange bursts its local bonds. And the value of commodities, accordingly, expands more and more into the material embodiment of human labor as such. Notice that phrase. The value of commodities expands more and more into the material embodiment of human labor as such. In that proportion does the money form become transferred to commodities which are by nature fitted to perform the social function of a universal equivalent. These, those commodities are the precious metals. So, again, this is the co-evolution, if you like, of the value form and the money form. And this, of course, then leads him to say, well, there are two commodities that really uh, perform this function very well, and those commodities are gold and silver. And this then suggests that these are going to become the universal forms of, of money within Uh, a capitalist society where value has become, as it were, the regulatory norm of the exchange relations. In this sense, he says, uh, every commodity is a symbol of value, but that symbol is actually then going to be reflected in the monetary form. And then that leads him to this conclusion, which is that men are henceforth related to each other in their social production in a purely atomistic way. Now the Adam Smith argument was that in a perfectly functioning market no one individual can actually dictate prices. Prices form as a result of a market process and no one individual or collection of individuals has control over those prices. The prices will arise out of the exchange process independent of the will of any one particular or even one group uh, within the population. So this is the exchange process that Marx is envisaging. And it is a perfect market system in which money is now well established, clearly established, gold and silver, uh, in which value is now become more securely established because of the volume of exchange which is going on which is equating labours from all over the world uh, into uh, a single system uh, of exchange relations. So I don't think this is a too difficult a chapter, but it leads us then, of course, into the chapter three, which is the money or the circulation of commodities. Now, last week I had suggested to you that this is kind of be going to be a, a a difficult chapter and probably you would give up on it before you got to the end of it i don't know if you've experienced that maybe maybe you didn't uh, but uh, it is very common to sort of throw up hands in frustration uh, at this particular chapter but it has if you like a simple structure and i would always advise you when you're hitting marks to look at the the section headings in Volume 1, they, they, they indicate what is going on. Section 1 is about the measure of values. Section 2 is about the medium of circulation, means of circulation. And Section 3 is about money, which is the unity of both measure of values and means of circulation, and some of the contradictions that attach to that uh, unity. So there is a framework, a general framework, if you like, which I try to diagram in that, that uh, sort of dialectical uh, movement that, that depicted last time. So anyway, chapter three starts like this. The measure of values. Throughout this work I assume that gold is the money commodity for the sake of simplicity. And then he talks about the function of gold is to supply commodities with the material for the expression of their values. That is, gold is an expression of the value of value. It is not value itself, but it is an expression. Or, in elsewhere, it'll be a representation of value. And then he goes on at the bottom of this first page to say, money as a measure of value is the necessary form of appearance of the measure of value which is imminent in commodities, namely labor time. So money is a representation of labor time. And socially necessary labor time, of course. And that uh, is something which is imminent in commodities, and money seeks to express or represent it. And it does it, uh, in part, by allowing for price formation. And so Marx talks about the measure of value in relationship to price formation. And This leads him to do a a sort of duality around the measure of values. That a price is something which is an ideal number which you would hang upon commodities. It's the label which says this is going to cost this. And this is an ideal determination. It is not something which is determined by exchange it's what the seller hopes to get it is therefore as he says uh, a purely ideal or notional form so initially the price or money form of commodities is like their form of value generally quite distinct from their palpable and real bodily form it is therefore a purely ideal or notional form the guardian of the commodities must therefore lend commodities his tongue or hang a ticket on them in order to communicate their prices to the outside world. These are notional or ideal prices. So there's an ideal act. When Marx talks about it as an ideal, it means it is a mental rather than material fact. Money, therefore, he says, serves only in an imaginary or ideal capacity. You imagine what the value of a commodity is, and you say, this is I, I hope that this is worth, you know, two pounds or five pounds or whatever. And this value form is then a very significant uh, way in which markets must work. As he says, the money that performs this function of measure of value is only imaginary. The price depends entirely on the actual substance that is money. The value, i.e. the quantity of human labor which is contained in a ton of iron, is expressed by an imaginary quantity of the money commodity which contains the same amount of labor as the iron. So therefore you would say the value of the gold is equivalent to the value of the iron and and therefore you would then use the value of the gold as a means to sell the iron. But these are all price expressions. And this takes Marx immediately into the question of, well, as an expression, gold has particular particular, uh, qualities. Uh, And this then leads him into saying this on page 192, as measure of value and a standard of price, money performs two quite different functions. So money is at some point going to be a real measure of the value of commodity. But it's only a real measure after the exchange. Before the exchange, it's a notional value. And it is therefore a standard of price. Standard of price is an ideal measure, which you hope to realize. The real measure of value comes after you've actually exchanged it for the gold. Gold can serve, he says, as a measure of value, only because it is itself a product of labor and therefore potentially variable in value. So you're going to take the labor that is incorporated in the production of gold and you're going to treat that as the norm against which all other commodities are going to be valued. This immediately poses the problem of what about the labor content of the gold? Is it constant? No, it's not. It's constantly changing because it's a product of concrete labor. And what we're now going to see is, I don't know if you remember, but back in the chapter on relative and equivalent form of value, Marx started to talk about the equivalent form and the contradictions of the the equivalent form, that a particular commodity was going to be a measure of labor Content in general. How can that be? And obviously, there's a contradiction in that, and Marx is then resurrecting that contradiction here. And this then leads into the possibility of inflation. Uh, Marx had to deal with that because in 1848 there was the famous gold rush to California. Suddenly a lot of new gold is coming on the market and suddenly the value of gold is, you know, going down. And so what happens to prices uh, when this happens? Uh, so he has to deal a bit with, uh, with, that, with that kind of problem. But he, he basically says, uh, this doesn't change uh, the relative prices all prices will shift. If, if, if gold becomes scarce, then all prices will move up, uh, but they'll move up in ratio to each other and that therefore the value content will simply... Uh, but he has to recognize that there's the possibility of inflation in the monetary form or deflation of the monetary form because there is some scarcity of gold and we'll come up upon that later. So this then leads him to the conclusion of this little part of the argument. The price is the money name of the labor objectified in a commodity. The magnitude of the value of a commodity therefore expresses a necessary relation to social labor time which is inherent in the process by which its value is created. With the transformation of the magnitude of value into the price, This necessary relation appears as the the exchange ratio between a single commodity and the money commodity which exists outside it. And then he goes on to say this. The possibility, therefore, exists of a quantitative incongruity between price and magnitude of value. This is the bottom of 196 i.e. the possibility that the price may diverge from the magnitude of value is inherent in the price form itself. And then he goes on to say something strange or seemingly strange. This is not a defect, but on the contrary makes this form the adequate one for a mode of production whose laws can only assert themselves as blindly operating averages between constant irregularities. What he's talking about here is that if price is going to work in the market in such a way as to represent value, then in a situation where there's too much of a commodity in the market, then the price is going to have to go down. And as the price goes down, producers will produce less of the product. So you will end up coming into equilibrium. In other words, equilibrium of supply and demand in the market can only work if prices actually always will be deviating from value, sometimes in a positive direction, sometimes negative, depending upon demand and supply conditions. So if the market is going to work perfectly, you need something like a price form which can deviate from value. If all commodities changed exchanged at their values all of the time, there would be no mechanism. And here Marx is allowing that demand and supply in the market is significant. That demand and supply is going to affect relative prices. The relative prices are going to help, as it were, create an equilibrium situation in the market. And that equilibrium situation in the market is going to be a representation of value. But in order to get to that equilibrium, you need the prices to fluctuate around demand and supply conditions. Now, the way in which the classical political economists talked about this was, there were prices, and what were called natural prices. What they meant by natural prices were equilibrium prices that that price at which demand and supply is in equilibrium. And that is the representation of value. But in order to get to that, prices have to have this quantitative incongruity. And, as Marx kind of says, this is not a defect, but on the contrary it makes this form the adequate one for a mode of production whose laws can only assert themselves as blindly operating averages that is, natural prices, between constant irregularities. He then goes on to say something which is much more problematic, however. The price form is not only compatible with the possibility of a quantitative incongruity between magnitude of value and price, between the magnitude of value and its own expression in money, but it may also harbour a qualitative contradiction, was the result that price ceases altogether to express value, despite the fact that money is nothing but the value form of commodities. Things which in and for themselves are not commodities, things such as conscience, honour, etc., can be offered for sale by their holders and thus acquire the form of commodities through their price. Hence a thing can, formally speaking, have a price without having a value. The expression of price is in this case imaginary, like certain quantities in mathematics. On the other hand, the imaginary price form may also conceal a real value relation or one derived from it, as, for instance, the price of uncultivated land, which is without value because no human labour is objectified in it. Now, this is a very important passage. And I think over time it's become even more important, and I think if Marx was writing this today, he would want and feel the necessity to elaborate considerably upon what he's talking about here. Okay. Things that are not commodities, conscience, honor, can acquire the form of commodities through their price we have a situation right now where if you said how do you value a company like apple well you could take all of its inventory of goods and you could take its production and all this kind of stuff and you could add it all up and you could get some sort of price of what Apple is worth. But under contemporary conditions, you would find that would be nowhere near the market price. The market price would include, if you sold Apple on the market, in what are called intangibles, reputation, and actually reputational value is something which is not necessarily achieved through labor input in the sense that Marx is talking about it. It might involve labor in creating the imaginary of what a commodity can do. So if you take a brand of toothpaste, for example. You could take well, okay what's it, what's the socially necessary labor time involved in the production of the toothpaste but all toothpaste companies are busy as hell trying to you know alter their reputational value and in fact there's a peculiar way in which the higher the price the more people think there's a you know there's substance to the reputational value and therefore they should buy it um, There's a big study of shampoos, the other, you know, which there are these classy shampoos, which actually turn out to be no better than just soap and water, which sell for a huge amount because of their reputational value. So we have a market system in which this quantita- qualitative incongruity between value and price is actually very significant to the way in which the market is working. And in the case of uncultivated land, obviously, there's a land price, even though nobody's put any labor whatsoever into changing the land. And in that instance, of course, you would start to say, well, actually, the price of something is also dependent not only on the commodity itself, but also on externality conditions of other commodities. In the case of land, the value of a plot of land does not depend solely on what is, what labor is incorporated in that piece of land. It also depends on labor which is incorporated in the lands around it. One of the ways in which the value of a piece of land gets increased dramatically is somebody builds a highway into an empty area. That makes the land accessible. Nothing's been done to the land but labor has been put into the highway and some of the external effects of that value are then incorporated in the land. So this qualitative contradiction is something which is one that I mentioned last time, you know, in Reading Capital, there are a number of doors that open and you go through and you see different things. Now, Marx doesn't do much with this at all. But in our situation, in our time, we would have to do a lot with this. And Marx opens up the possibility, to his credit, but he doesn't follow it through. But if we're going to do what I think Marx would want us to do, which is to say, okay, there's something going on here that needs now to be more thoroughly explored, then this item needs to be much more thoroughly explored and how is it that the value of commodities and in fact the whole exercise of branding of commodities and brand value and reputational value and intangibles which are involved in stock market evaluations of the values of companies how is it how do those things work that's Again, one of the things that is not covered, Marx does not cover, but opens the possibility. In other words, here is the possibility. But having said this, he just says, well, okay, I'm not gonna consider this uh, any further. But I think we have to, and what we would make of it is an interesting kind of question we can debate. So that is about money as a measure of value. There are other things about this notion of a measure of value which are significant, which is a measure of value, you want it to remain stable. And that's why gold becomes important because it has a stable character. As measure of value, it performs, money performs quite a few different functions in society. Marx is not elaborating very much upon them, but we can do so. This leads us into the second major section, which is money as a means of circulation. And here Marx starts to get into the flow of exchange. This is the conversion of, if you like, a single incident into a flow. And I've mentioned that Marx is very much about flows and therefore this conversion into the flow category is gonna be highly significant to the rest of capital. And the flow begins with him setting up the idea of a metamorphosis of commodities. And this then takes him to the concept Uh, of a contradictory and mutually exclusive conditions which regulate the flow of commodities as they move from the commodity form into the money form and then from the money form into the commodity form. So we get the emergence of this movement of commodity, money, commodity, or CMC. And... He says that this, these mutually exclusive conditions are actually set up certain contradictions. And he has an interesting remark about the contradictions. The further development of the commodity, go back to where I started off by saying that Marx is developing the concepts all of the time. The further development of the commodity does not abolish contradictions but rather provides the form within which they have room to move. This is, in general, the way in which real contradictions are resolved. And he has a very interesting parallel. For instance, it is a contradiction to depict one body as constantly falling towards another and at the same time constantly flying away from it. The ellipse is a form of motion within which this contradiction is both realized and resolved. In so far as the process of exchange transfers commodities from hands in which they are non-use values to hands in which they are use values, it is a process of social metabolism. Now, he's already introduced the concept of metabolism in natural metabolism, but here he's talking about social metabolism. The product of one kind of useful labor replaces that of another once a commodity has arrived in a situation in which it can serve as a use value it falls out of the sphere of exchange we consume it use it and it falls out of the sphere of exchange into that of consumption but the former sphere alone interests us here we therefore have to consider the whole process in its formal aspect that is the aspect of metamorphosis of commodities through which social metabolism is mediated. The metamorphosis of commodities is a change of the form of expression of value. When you start with a commodity, value is embodied and congealed in the commodity form when that value is converted into the money equivalent, then the value takes a different form. It's no longer in the commodity form, it's in the money form. It is then converted, once again, from the money form into the commodity form. This is what the social metabolism is about. So he then takes to analyzing this CMC circulation process. And it's broken down into two parts, C to M. How difficult is it to move from the commodity form to the money form? And this is the one place where Marx starts to talk about that movement depends very much upon the wants, needs and desires of a population for the commodity that you've produced. It can on, the commodity can only be converted into money, he says, by being socially useful to somebody somewhere. But the division of labor, he says, is an organization of production which has grown up naturally, a web which has been and continues to be woven behind the backs of the producers of commodities. Perhaps the commodity is the product of a new kind of labor and claims to satisfy a newly arisen need or is even trying to bring forth a new need. This is one of the few places in Capital where Marx is talking about conditions of realization that may be problematic. He says, today the product satisfies the social need. Tomorrow it may perhaps be expelled partly or completely from its place by a similar product. See, and so this is about the production of new wants and needs. At the end of it, however, the price of the commodity is merely, he says, the money name of the quantity of social labor objectified in it. And he talks about this again, uh, and talks, I think, in a nice sort of a Shakespearean kind of mode, we then see that commodities are in love with money, like Trump is in love with what's his name but that the course of true love never did run smooth That is, there's always a difficulty of getting from C to M and that difficulty is yeah you've got to make that transition but there has to be a want need desire love for what it is that you've got in order for that C to M to occur But this is part of what the organic relation is and the process which is going on in society. The quantitative articulation, he says, and this is bottom of 202, of society's productive organism by which its scattered elements are integrated into the system of the division of labor is as haphazard and spontaneous as its qualitative articulation. The owners of commodities therefore find out that the same division of labor which turns them into independent private producers also makes the social process of production and the relations of the individual producers to each other within that process independent of the producers themselves they also find out that the independence of the invid- individuals from each other has as its counterpart and supplement a system of all-round material dependence now this is A contradictory argument. On the one hand, the social division of labor allows people to act in purely independent way as producers. But the social metabolism is such that you're not independent because you've got to find a market for your product. So on the one hand you're independent and on the other hand you're dependent and you're dependent upon conditions in the market. The division of labor he says converts the product of labor into a commodity and thereby makes necessary its conversion into money at the same time it makes it a matter of chance whether this transubstantiation succeeds or not here however we have to look at the phenomena in its pure shape and must therefore assume it has preceded normally Okay, so he's talked about, you know, the possibility of realization crises and realization difficulties and all the difficulties. But he's now saying, okay, I've had enough of that. I'm going to assume there's no problem. That that you can make the, the leap from commodity into money without any difficulty. And that therefore the conversion of C into M is easily accomplished. This then leads him to say, well, but what about M into C? Now C into M is taking the particularity of the commodity and trying to find its universal equivalent. The move M to C is taking the universal equivalent and trying to find its equivalence in the particularity of the commodity. Which is easier to do, going from C to M or M to C? In One case you're going from the particular to the universal, the other going universal to the particular. It's not equivalent. It's easier to go from the universal to the particular than it is to go from the particular to the universal. That is, you risk far more when you're contemplating the C into M than you You risk when you're looking at M into C. M gives you the universal power and he starts off looking at MC by talking about universal alienation. That is that you have money and you can use it to buy whatever you want. You can go get anything you like. Furthermore once you've got the money The commodity that you use to get the money disappears entirely from view. So you enter the market with nobody knowing what it was that you produced. Which is, again, part of the fetish mask. You have no idea when somebody comes in with a lot of money where they got it from. Which is a kind of constant problem for dealing with money laundering and all kinds of things like that these days. So, the complete metamorphosis of the commodity, which is C to M and then M to C, these two antithetical transmutations, he says on 206, are reflected in the antithetical economic characteristics of the two processes. By taking part in the act of sale, the commodity owner becomes a seller. In the act of purchase, he becomes a buyer. So the same person, two roles. Being a seller and being a buyer are therefore not fixed roles, but constantly attach themselves to different persons in the course of circulation of commodities. This whole process, he says, uh, creates a circuit, circulation process. The whole process constitutes the circulation of commodities. Which then leads him on 208 to 209 to a very interesting passage which we should spend some time looking at. Circulation, he says, sweats money from every poor. Commodities are dropping out of circulation but money is staying in circulation. So money keeps uncirculating. But then Marx goes on to say this on 208. Nothing could be more foolish than the dogma. That because every sale is a purchase, and every purchase a sale, the circulation of commodities necessarily implies an equilibrium between sales and purchases. And then he goes on to explain what he means by all this. And the contradiction is this. He says right at the bottom, No one can sell unless someone else purchases but no one directly needs to purchase because he has just sold. Circulation bursts through all the temporal, spatial, and personal barriers imposed by the direct exchange of products, and it does this by splitting up the direct identity present in this case between the exchange of one's own product and the acquisition of someone else's. To say that these mutually independent and antithetical processes form an internal unity, is to say also that their internal unity moves forward through external antitheses. These two processes lack internal independence because they complement each other. Hence, if the assertion of their external independence proceeds to a certain critical point, their unity violently makes itself felt by producing a crisis. What's Marx doing here? Now, there's something in classical political economy called Say's Law. And Say's Law stated that since every purchase is a sale and every sale is a purchase, there can be no general overproduction. Crises are impossible in perfectly functioning markets. So says Say's Law. Marx is saying this is a load of rubbish. Nothing could be more foolish than this dogma. For the simple reason that within this transition if I transfer my commodity into the market and get the money I can then hold the money as long as I like. And if Everybody refuses to use their money, nobody else can sell their commodities and you get a general crisis. In other words, holding money, but if you feel there's some risk in what's going on in society, what would you rather hold, money or commodities? Most of the time, you probably prefer, prefer to hold the universal equivalent unless there's something going along with the universal equivalent, huge inflation, like in you know, Venezuela, 2,000 cent per day or something of that kind. Then you don't want to hold money. You would rather hold cans of tuna. But a lot of the time, you'd rather hold money. What are corporations doing right now? They've been benefiting from quantitative easing and they've been getting a lot of money. What are they doing with their money? They're not necessarily investing it at all. What are they doing? They're buying back their own stock. Buying back their own stock raises the value of their stock so they buy back more stock. So they do not you don't have to spend the money once you've got it. What Marx is doing here is saying CMC is problematic because there is a constant temptation to hold money, particularly under conditions of uncertainty. You withhold that next step. And if I as an individual hold money, no problem. But if everybody starts to hold money, big problem. that's where the antithesis is saying here this is a unity between the c and m and the m and c the unity violently makes itself felt by producing a crisis so that you can get a crisis simply in this circulation process because somebody somewhere or even groups of people will start to hold money rather than keep the process going. So as he says, the antithetical phases of the metamorphosis of the commodity are the developed forms of motion of this imminent contradiction. These forms therefore imply the possibility of crises. This is the Keynesian what McCain's later on called the liquidity trap. Though no more than the possibility, he says, says Marx, for the development of this possibility into a reality, a whole series of conditions is required, which do not yet even exist from the standpoint of the simple circulation of commodities. But notice something here. He's already looking at where and how this whole kind of social metabolism can get gummed up and go wrong and produce... Major crises in society. And in the 1930s, it was pretty clear that the holding of money, because everybody felt insecure, meant that the market for commodities collapsed. And as the market for commodities collapsed, what did they do? They ended up burning all the coffee in Brazil and shooting all the cattle in Iowa and things like that. So this is this is marx beginning to talk about the possibility of this system collapsing for some reason or other and you can see simply by looking at the cmc that there's a possibility here that this could happen he's not going to say as a probability because he hasn't got all the other conditions later on he will talk about the probability of crises forming in this kind of way but we need a lot more to know a lot more about this situation before we get to that far. This then leads him into a general discussion of the circulation of money. Now I'm going to pretty much pass over this because the, the question he's really posing is this. In a complicated society, where lots of commodities are being exchanged, then how much money do you need to facilitate the exchange? And it, can situations arise where there's a shortage of money or an excess of money? What, how, How is this going to be? And this was something that bothered the classical political economists. And the question of how much money you need was a question of considerable debate. And for the next few pages, Marx talks about various ways in which uh, to think of this. And I'm going to skip over these because there are, he says, basically three factors which tell you how much money you need. The first is the movement of prices. That is... The second is the quantity of commodities in circulation. And the third is something called the velocity of circulation of money. Very important magnitude. Federal Reserve is constantly talking about the velocity of circulation. Velocity of circulation is how many times in a day does a dollar bill exchange hands. That's, if, for example, this dollar bill only changes once, it's a slow velocity. If I use the, 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 the dollar bill there and then the dollar bill goes there and then the dollar bill goes there, so the velocity of circulation accelerates so velocity of circulation is a very important magnitude. And this generates a quantity theory of money sort of version, which it outlines on 2.19. The law that the quantity of circulating medium is determined by the sum of the prices of commodities in circulation and the average velocity of the circulation of money may also be stated as follows. Given the sum of values of commodities, and the average rapidity of their metamorphoses. The quantity of money or of the material of money in circulation depends on its own value." This then leads him also to then into the next section, section C on, well, in, mean, in the circulation process, the various forms that money itself can take. It can take the shape of coin, uh, it can take its uh, shape in the form of uh, state-issued uh, paper. It can take, uh, you know, many, many different forms. Um, and uh, paper money uh, issued by the state and given force, currency, and so on. Those are also important. And this form of money, he says, emerges directly out of the circulation of metallic money. But then there's another kind of money which begins to emerge, and this is what becomes significant. This is on 2.24. He talks about credit money. Implies relations that are as yet totally unknown from the standpoint of the simple circulation of commodities but it may be noted in passing that just as true paper money arises out of the function of money as a circulating medium, so does credit money take root spontaneously in the function of money as the means of payment. Credit money is really IOUs. I owe you, I'll pay you tomorrow, day after, or something like that, or I can write it down, or I can just promise you. So credit money starts to become part of the way in which money facilitates the circulation of commodities. This leads to the third section which is that of money. The commodity which functions, he says in 227, as a measure of value and therefore also as a medium of circulation this is, he's bringing the two together now, medium circulation, you know, there's money as a measure of value and money as a medium of circulation, but there's only one money at the end of the day. And the one money is a unity of measure of value and medium of circulation. And he said, the commodity which functions to do this, either in its own body or through a representative is money. Gold or silver is therefore money. It functions of money when it has to appear in person as gold. It is then the money commodity. And so Marx is talking very much about a society in which there is a single money commodity. Here too, we have to recognize that that is not the situation today. Gold is no longer at the root of world money. Marx assumes at the beginning that gold is the money form, continues to assume throughout that The gold form cannot and will not be challenged. This is something which clearly has to give way. But before doing so, we have some other things to look at. And this is when Marx then says, "Okay, let's look at the process of hoarding. And in particular, hoarding of money. Hoarding of money, as he says, money is petrified into a hoard. And the seller of commodities can become a hoarder of money. This is going back to the CMC and the hoarding of the money. In the very beginnings of the circulation of commodities it is only the excess amounts of use value which are converted into money. And then he goes on to talk about gold and silver and all the rest of it. Um, But the gold in itself starts to become a fetish form. And hordes of gold and silver get piled up, he says, at all points of commercial intercourse with the possibility of keeping hold of the commodity as exchange value, or exchange value as a commodity, the lust for gold awakens. Gold is a wonderful thing. Its owner is master of all he desires. Gold Gold can even enable souls to enter paradise. This is from Christopher Columbus, who was stealing gold as much as he could find. Since money does not reveal what has been transformed into it, everything, commodity or not, is convertible into money. Everything becomes saleable and purchasable. Circulation becomes the great social retort into which everything is thrown to come out again as the money crystal. Nothing is immune from this alchemy. The bones of the saints cannot withstand it, let alone more delicate res sacrosancti extra commercium hominum, which he translates into... A purchase in the strict sense implies that gold and silver uh sorry it's from henry viii uh, it's about him robbing the monasteries and all the rest of it and stealing their gold just as in money every qualitative difference between commodities is extinguished so too for its part as a radical lever it extinguishes all distinctions but money is itself a commodity an external object capable of becoming the private property of any individual. Do you remember that moment back when he's talking about relative and equivalent forms of value and, 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 and talks about the fact that it's not only that the particularity of a commodity is standing in for all forms of value. It's also that private persons can start to hold social wealth because that's what money represents. Thus, he says, the social power becomes the private power of private persons. It's a very important idea. And it's for this reason, he says, that ancient society therefore denounced money as tending to destroy the economic and moral order. Modern society, which already in its uh, infancy had pulled Pluto by the hair of his head from the bowels of the earth, greets gold as its holy grail, as the glittering incarnation of its innermost principle of life. But the history of money and gold has this dual character, filthy lucre. It's treated as excrement. You should see what uh, Freud says about it. It's shit. Uh, and and that's how the bourgeois live. They live by shitting. Yeah, a lot. This is, um, and then this leads to Marx's comment as follows. The commodity as a use value satisfies a particular need and forms a particular element of material wealth. But the value of a commodity measures the degree of its attractiveness for all other elements of material wealth and therefore measures the social wealth of its owner. To the simple owner of commodities among the barbarians, and even to the peasant of Western Europe, value is inseparable from the value form, hence an increase in his hoard of gold and silver is an increase of value. There is therefore a whole society which is built upon accumulation of gold and hoarding of gold. And then then Marx sort of talks about this. The hoarding drive, he says, is boundless in its nature. Qualitatively or formally considered, money is independent of all limits. That is, it is the universal representative of material wealth because it is directly convertible into any other commodity. The contradiction between the quantitative limitation and the qualitative lack of limitation of money keeps driving the hoarder back to his Sisyphean task, Accumulation. This is the first mention of accumulation that we've got. And it's about the accumulation of wealth in money form and hoarding of that wealth. The hoarder therefore sacrifices the lusts of his flesh to the fetish of gold. Sell much and buy little is the sum of his political economy. Now, hoarding says Marx, is antithetical to the continuity of the circulation of capital. Therefore, you have to break with this medieval stuff and find some way to go past the hoarder. But before you do that, you have to recognize, as he says at the bottom of 231, there are actually some purposes where metallic circulation goes alongside of hoarding with productive consequences for society. He puts it this way, In order that the mass of money actually in circulation may always correspond to the saturation level of the sphere of circulation, that is, the sum of the prices, times the quantity of commodities factored by the velocity, It is necessary for the quantity of gold and silver available in a country to be greater than the quantity required to function as coin. The reserves created by hoarding serve as as channels through which money may flow in and out of circulation, so that the circulation itself never overflows its banks. You have a mass of commodities in circulation and being exchanged. You have a mass of money which is required. The mass of commodities suddenly increases because there's a good harvest or people have got very productive, therefore you need more money. Where's the money gonna come from? If you've got a hoard, you can put inject more money from the hoard in much the same way that the Federal Reserve injects more money into the system by you know, buying mortgages and, and all the rest of it. So having a hoard there has a function in relationship to the ups and downs of commodity. In a moment when there's too much money in there, then it's taken out and put back into the hoard. In a, in a sense, what Marx is describing here is a hoarding movement, which is analogous to the Federal Reserve doing quantitative easing and then you know, going in the other direction. So that you're releasing money in and out depending upon conditions of trade. And if the conditions of trade are hot, then you release more money in, if it's short, you know, I mean, and all the rest of it. But then this leads into the other, another function of money, which is means of payment. And here we start to talk about something in which there is no actual utilization of money at all, because I simply state, I owe you. That's the means of payment. And this leads then to the way in which uh, somebody will buy a commodity before he pays for it. The seller sells an existing commodity. The buyer pays as the mere representative of money, or rather as the representative of future money. The seller becomes a creditor. The buyer becomes a debtor. Since the metamorphosis of commodities or the development of their form of value has undergone a change here, money receives a new function as well. It becomes the means of payment. And this then introduces into the discussion the role of creditor or debtor. And this, these roles result from the simple circulation of commodities. So you've got the simple circulation of commodities. You've seen all the ways in which it can work, but debtors and creditors become significant because the timing of the circulation of commodities uh, is complicated. It's complicated by the fact that the harvest comes in in September. You need money all year round. How do you get the money all year round? Well, what you do is you borrow money, you borrow money, you borrow money. Harvest comes in, you sell your grain, and you then pay off your debt. So in Britain at the time there was uh, Michaelmas, which is the day in November, which is considered to be the day when all debts were going to be settled. But in order for the circulation to continue, in order for the person to you know live while they grow their crops, they need to work on IOUs and debtors and creditors become part and part of the story. But there's a power relation in this. The opposition now looks, he says, much less pleasant and capable of more rigid crystallization. The same characteristics can emerge independently of the circulation of commodities. And he talks about the class struggle in the ancient world, for instance took the form mainly of a contest between debtors and creditors and ended in Rome with the ruin of the plebeian debtors who were replaced by slaves. In the Middle Ages, the contest ended with the ruin of the feudal debtors. The relation between creditor and debtor does have the form of a money relation. It was only the reflection of an antagonism which lay deeper at the level of the economic conditions of existence. On 234... He converts this discussion of debtors into creditors into the point of origin of capital. So finally, on page 234, we get to capital. The means of payment, he says, enters circulation, but only after the commodity has already left it. The money no longer mediates the process, it brings it to an end by emerging independently as the absolute form of existence of exchange value, in other words, the universal commodity. The seller turns his commodity into money in order to satisfy some need. The hoarder in order to preserve the monetary form of his commodity and the indebted purchaser in order to be able to pay. If he does not pay, his goods will be sold compulsorily. The value form of the commodity money has now become the self-sufficient purpose of the sale owing to a social necessity springing from the conditions of the process of circulation itself. This is a slightly convoluted way of saying debtors and creditors, the person who holds the money is going to start to lend the money out. And in lending the money out, the aim and objective of lending that money out is not to get commodities, but to get more money. That is, you're going to charge interest. You're going to get more money. And out of this comes, as he says, this social necessity, springing from the conditions of the process of circulation itself, which says... There's going to be a transition in the way in which we're looking at circulation from CMC to MCM. 234 is where this transition begins. And remember this because it The transition from CMC into MCM is is not accidental. It arises out of a social necessity. Because at a certain point, those people who control the money need to use it in order for this society, the social metabolism to work. They have to use it. But why would anybody use money to buy commodities and then sell for money. Why would you go through all of that bother to end up with exactly the same amount of money at the end of this process as you started out with? Whereas with use values, the same value which you get makes sense because you need a shirt as opposed to shoes, it doesn't make sense when it comes to MCM. Because you're just getting the same amount of money back at the end as you started out with. So the obvious incentive is that it's going to be MCM plus an increment of some kind. You're only going to lend the money out if you can get more back. So this is the transition that Marx is going into. But this is a contradictory situation. The buyer converts money back into commodities before he has turned commodities into money. In other words, he achieves the second metamorphosis of commodities before the first. The quantity involved here, when well, then talks about you know, relationships with creditors and debtors and, and all the rest of it, and the means of payment. There is a contradiction, he says, imminent in the function of money as the means of payment. When the payments balance each other, money functions only nominally as money of account, as a measure of value. But when actual payments have to be made, money does not come onto the scene as a circulating medium in its merely transient form of an intermediary in the social metabolism but as the individual incarnation of social labor, the independent presence of exchange value, the universal commodity. This contradiction bursts forth in that aspect of an industrial and commercial crisis, which is known as a monetary crisis. Here we go again. We're looking at ways in which the social metabolism can get gummed up and screwed up. Such a crisis occurs... Marx says only where the ongoing chain of payments has been fully developed along with an artificial system for settling them whenever there is a general disturbance of the mechanism no matter what its cause money suddenly and immediately changes from its merely nominal shape money of account into hard cash profane commodities can no longer replace it the use value of commodities becomes valueless and their value vanishes in the face of their own form of value. The bourgeois, drunk with prosperity and arrogantly certain of himself, has just declared that money is a purely imaginary creation. Commodities alone are money, he said. But now the opposite cry resounds over the markets of the world. Only money is a commodity. As the heart pants after fresh water, so pants his soul after money, the only wealth in a crisis the antithesis between commodities and their value form money is raised to the level of an absolute contradiction hence money's form of appearance is here also a matter of indifference the monetary famine remains whether payments have to be made in gold or credit money such as bank notes if we now consider the total amount of money in circulation during a given period we find that For any given turnover rate of the medium of circulation and the means of payment it is equal to the sum of prices to be realized. Then he goes on to talk about the circulation process of this kind. Now, credit money is the link between the general circulation of commodities and the circulation of capital, and the the existence of the capital form. But we haven't explored the capital form as yet. That is to be done in the next few chapters. Uh, But what Marx does in these pages is to, to to set up the way in which capital emerges out of, the processes of exchange, and it doesn't arise because somebody decided to do it. It arises because the contradictions of the exchange system can only be resolved by a form of circulation which is going to use money in order to sustain the system, and the agent that uses that money is going to be defined as a capitalist. Capitalist. The development of money, he says, on 240 as a means of payment, makes it necessary to accumulate it in preparation for the days when the sums which are owing fall due. So this is, if you like, the point where Marx has brought us, uh, and the last sector section is called World Money. And he kind of says, it is in the world market that money first functions to its full extent as the commodity whose natural form is also the directly social form of realization of human labor in the abstract. Its mode of existence becomes adequate to its concept. The concept of abstract labor was given way back. He's now defined a mode of existence for abstract labor, which is adequate to that concept, and that only exists when the world market has been constructed. You can't have value without having the world market. You can't have value without having money. Money cannot perform all of its functions in the form that Marx is talking without the world market. This is where he's brought us to the end of this chapter. And hoarding has a very important role to play. You understand why hoarding occurs but we can also see a form of hoarding which is about taking money out of circulation at a certain point in time holding that money and injecting it back into circulation at another point in time and the only reason you would inject it back into circulation is because you can get more for the money when you inject it back into circulation and that is going to be the theory of capital which is taken up in part two so this is the chapter in money you've gone through a series of stages Measures, measure of value medium of circulation how much money do you need in exchange what are the social relations that are involved what's involved in the circulation process and the metamorphosis from money to commodities to money what's involved in all of that are there points in here where the potentiality exists for the system to come up and to get, get screwed up? And the answer is yes. Uh, there may be a realization problem. People may hoard too much money. Uh, there's a possibility of monetary crises because too much money is available and not enough is available in relationship to, to the commodities being exchanged. And the value relation to the money is problematic. Uh, so we've got all of these sorts of uh, questions which are being posed in this chapter so it's a complicated chapter but from here on in it gets much easier so uh, we'll do the next three chapters next time but they're much easier but let's talk about if there are questions that people have uh, about the money chapter Yeah, I guess we need a. To...
2: Hi. So you mentioned uh, a while back that there are intangible commodities uh, such as brand reputation and whatnot. I'm wondering if you could tr- translate this concept into contemporary social media use and how perhaps I think the term has been thrown around as social capital is used to build a presence, would you say this falls under the same kind of purview that Marx was talking about?
1: Well, I, I don't think it's uh, fair to say that Marx talked about this in a way which is adequate to the to the situation. Um, there are lots of things we can learn from Capital. I mean, there are some things that that, that stand out as being requiring, as it were. Uh, both an expansion and potentially a break with some of Marx's conceptual uh, arguments. Uh, I would say that what we've encountered so far, the two areas where uh, that you would need to engage in some serious modification of what he has to say, is firstly uh, the question of gold. Uh, gold is no longer uh, at the basis of the monetary system. The monetary structures have changed uh, quite dramatically since uh, Marx was working, therefore we need to rework uh, a, a lot of that. Uh, but I think you know, in, in, in so doing, we also have to recognize some of these other things like he opens up the possibility of uh, price not being equivalent to value and and uh, the circumstances are such as to open that door to a consideration of reputational value, uh, intangibles and uh, the, uh, the, the like. Um, how that uh, works when we start to sort of try to v- look at uh, how do you value Google? Uh, what is the value of a Google transaction? Um, there's some interesting sort of questions there because in effect, a lot of the value in Google is created by us. We're the ones who who are doing the labour, but we're we're the free gifts of human nature, if you like, which uh, Google is appropriating. Uh, now, Marx, by and large, is not going to be analysing forms of appropriation of that kind, except in the in the chapters on rent in Volume Three of Capital. So when he says in here that he assumes that the circulation is occurring in its normal way, uh, he's gonna assume away most of those problems. And uh, again, I, 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 mean, I think I, I'm fine with him assuming away all those problems. What I'm not fine with is people failing to recognize the implications of uh, making those assumptions and trying to actually cram into Marx's formulations, stuff that doesn't fit i think i think this question of of uh uh intangible value i mean actually that's something that's fairly recent in the history of capitalism one of my arguments about this would be that to the degree that uh capital reached certain what you might call uh quantitative even qualitative limits Uh, In the realm of uh, tangible commodity production in the 1970s, 1980s, it has shifted a lot of its activities into intangibles. And to the degree that uh, capital accumulation requires uh, a compounding rate of growth forevermore, uh, that quantitative uh, requirement is increasingly be settled by the issue he raises here, that money is limitless in terms of how much of it you can accumulate. Uh, That's not true of uh, tangible use values. There's a limit uh, to the number of yachts you can have, and number of McMansions you can own, or number of pairs of shoes. There there are lots of limits in the use value sphere of issues of that kind, but there are no limits uh, to some of these intangibles. And and of course, what's interesting is that uh, these intangibles are, are often a source of considerable disaster because if there's a merger you've got to value the company and how is the value made well the value is made by doing all of the things you can do with material but then you add in the intangibles and the intangibles are often estimated to be huge far bigger than the actual physical uh, materials Um, and then and then after the merger uh, whoever gets merged with it turns out the intangibles were not as as lucrative as everybody thought, and so suddenly there's this kind of collapse of either before the the consummation of the merger or after the consummation of the merger where company effectively goes goes bankrupt. You see that very much uh, in the crisis of 2007-2008 where some of the dicey... Uh, savings and loan and other institutions were taken over, some of the banks were taken over by uh, say Wells Fargo or Bank of America uh, they thought they were onto a good thing but then they found that the supposed intangibles were not there and that the value of the housing stock that was in their portfolio was far lower than was, you know, so off we go So, so there are a lot of Things of uh, that kind that I think need to be looked at, and I think in reading in reading Marx, it's important to say you know what does he what, did, what does he, does he tell us, which is valuable to know. What didn't he tell us? What did he assume away and indicate to us that in a deeper consideration we might want to consider these things? And the answer is, well, questions of realization, questions of intangibles questions of financial institutions and structures and so on and uh, the like. And so there are a lot of sort of additional things we would want uh, to complete our own analysis of uh, capital accumulation. But remember, Marx's critique of capital uh, has its own profound messages. I think it's very interesting that his critique of Say's Law which is the heart of Keynesian economics. that Marx picked that up right at the beginning. Uh, and in fact, his theory of crisis uh, applied extremely well in the 1930s. And, you know, the, the bourgeois economists had to reinvent the wheel, as it were, to get to the point where Marx had got to, sort of, 100 years before, or almost. And I think this is this is uh, again one of the one of the features. I mean, the general um, uh, there, there was a division within classical political economy over whether crises were possible in a perfectly functioning market system. Say's law said they were not possible. Ricardo accepted Say's law, and all of 19th century economics took Say's Law as being a basis of theory. Now Say's Law did not say there couldn't be overproduction of shoes relative to shirts or something like that. It just said there could not be a general crisis of over, overproduction. And, and uh, in the middle of the 1930s, that began to look to be a very stupid kind of position to hold. And so, so actually Keynes wrote a very nice little essay about Say's Law. And there were a couple of people in Marx's own time who did not accept Say's law. One was Malthus and unfortunately Marx really detested Malthus for a variety of reasons, some good and some purely prejudicial uh, about his religiosity and all the rest of it. Uh, But uh, Malthus uh, was part of what at the time were called general glut theorists, that general a crisis of overproduction could occur. Sismondi was another one and there were two or three people who held uh, to, to a general glut theory of crisis. Uh, but the majority of economists followed Ricardo in, in adopting Say's law. So a whole of economic theory up in the 1930s and Keynes came along and said Say's law does not make sense. Uh, we have to come up with uh, something called the liquidity trap which is, is essentially uh, the fact that people hold money, and in holding money uh, they depress uh, conditions of exchange, and the depressed conditions of exchange lead to people to holding more money, so you get into a downward spiral of the economy as a result. So Keynes did these things, uh, overthrew Say's law, and, uh, and, and, and uh, therefore Keynesian economics is effectively functioning on that little passage from Marx, where he kind of says nothing could be more childish than the dogma, uh, and so so Marx is very clear about that. So Marx does tell us a whole bunch of things, I think, which are very very important and very key, and which need to be listened to. Uh, but there are a whole bunch of things he doesn't cover, and I think that we need to 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 look at them and open them up for. For discussion and debate, as has happened, for instance, in the field of uh, financial capital, uh, there is an extensive uh, discussion amongst Marxists about how best to, uh, you know, integrate uh, a theory of finance capital into the general theory of capital accumulation that Marx proposed.
2: We have one question from online. Mm-hmm. Uh, what implications? This is from Jacob. What implications does breaking the tether between gold and money post, post Bretton Woods have for Marx's consideration of world monies?
1: Uh, well, it has a, a pretty huge uh, implications. Uh, Marx gets back into this question in Volume Three of Capital, and one of the points he makes there is that the credit system and the creation and money creation uh is something that the state can facilitate and private enterprises can augment i mean banks can create money by simply by leveraging operations and that therefore the creation of money uh is constantly uh, as he put as marx puts it in uh, volume three of capital is constantly striving to overcome the barrier which the material commodity of gold poses towards the expansion of the system. And he's, his language is something like it constantly strives, but at the same time can never overcome the barrier. It constantly breaks its head against this barrier of the metallic basis of the monetary system. So that was the position that Marx took. Now as we know in 1971 that all stopped uh, because uh, the relationship of the dollar to gold was 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 broken and therefore uh, dollar became open entirely uh, as the form of money and that therefore paper money in the state. Now This this creates a contradiction within the Marxian scheme of things. Because money is a representation of value. But one of the functions of gold was it's a material representation of value which is immaterial. But you've now moved from an immaterial value to a representation which is immaterial. Now two immaterials don't make a material. I mean, you're doubling down on the immateriality. And one of the immediate results, of course, of the uh, jumping out of the the gold constraint, and I think Marx recognized that it was gonna be a constraining effect upon capital accumulation, that the metallic base would always be a restraining effect. But it was no longer there. So one of the things that happened was that uh, inflation rate in the United States went zooming up. And if you remember the time, it was around 17%, you know, and the interest rate with Volcker went up to, I don't know, 16% or something like that. I mean, the end of the 1970s, plainly the fact that there was no longer a gold limit put the question of, well, who's in charge of how much money there is? And if you just print money, then you're gonna get inflation. And so Volcker comes along and says, well, the only way you can stop this is we've got to have a Federal Reserve and world central banks are going to have to collectively uh, decide on controlling inflation. And therefore, all monetary policy since the 1970s has been about controlling inflation. Now, the Federal Reserve was supposed to take unemployment into account. But under Volcker, no, they didn't take unemployment into account. So unemployment in the U.S. went up above 10% under Reagan. And, and uh, so this break was a very significant break. And the interesting thing, one of the interesting things I, I, I discovered was that the Chinese reckoned that the date when the U.S. went off the gold standard was a complete change in the nature of the, the capitalist system. And the history of the capitalist system was therefore change, was therefore uh, redirected uh, by this abandonment of the gold standard. And what the Chinese then recognized is that then who controls the world money? Okay, well, it was the US because most transactions in the world were in gold uh the, the the u.s had already gone to saudi arabia in the oil crisis of 1970s and said to them basically if you don't uh, invest all of that money in uh in in u.s dollars and all contracts are in u.s dollars we're going to invade you and occupy your oil wells um and and uh, so they so so most of the world's transactions are in, in dollars and therefore the u.s had the power of Uh, Of of printing dollars and could print them at will and therefore you get dollar diplomacy and you get dollar imperialism and you get dollar and the Chinese recognize that and of course the US was promoting a a system of free exchange of of, of free markets and free exchange and in particular uh, from the 1970s onwards has been a fierce uh, proponent of free capital flows around the world and it's used those free capital flows as far as the Chinese are concerned to basically rob much of the world of its wealth so if you look at something like the crisis in, the, in East and Southeast Asia which is very close to you know, China obviously uh, the argument was that the the US cut liquidity to commodity producers the commodity producers with no money with the heart pants after you know suddenly found themselves bankrupted because they couldn't roll over their debts and they couldn't get access to liquidity so the US banks and and the European banks and the Japanese banks bought up all of these productive act- companies in East and Southeast Asia uh, for almost nothing, because they, they had no value at that time. And then after that, they pump the liquidity in, and so the whole thing revives, and they sell them back at a huge profit. This was a huge operation of robbery, if you like, of value in East and Southeast Asia. Same things happened in the housing market, right, in this country. The foreclosure crisis comes along. All these houses are foreclosed upon. Who goes in and buys them up? All these big uh, sort of Blackstones and equity companies go in and buy them up for a song and, and and hope that the thing recovers and they rent them out and all this kind of stuff and they're making a killing uh, out of a financial operation. And this is the kind of financial operation which led the Chinese to kind of say, oh, we're not gonna open our capital markets. Who has been yelling like crazy at the Chinese about not opening its capital markets? The US. And the Chinese have said, yeah, yeah, we're going to open them. And they open them for a little bit, and then they shut them down again. They open for a little bit, they shut them down again. And they're, not, they're probably not going to open their capital markets, except that they also have a view that at a certain point, they want to be the ones who, who control the world currency. And there are competitors. You know, the euro is a competitor, the yen no longer. Yeah, obviously the Swiss franc has a kind of peculiar role but the Chinese I think are trying to exercise a condition in which at some point or other they will control the world currency or they will actually redefine the world in such a way that there are different currency regimes and it's already the case that the Chinese sign oil com- oil contracts not in dollars anymore uh, there's a big oil contract between China and Russia which was signed which was signed and and, and was not registered in 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 rubles but by signing in dollars you submit to the course the u.s uh, regime look at what happened to argentina some crazy judge in in south manhattan mandated all sorts of things about the argentinian debt and argentina had to uh, abide by a u.s judge making a a, a determination of of indebtedness in, uh, in, in in you know just down the road here so the Chinese uh, recognize that this is, a, this is a problem. But there is this big, big question of, of how world money is going to be determined in the future in the absence of any kind of metallic base. And who has the power to do it and what their policies are. Now, generally speaking, all of the world's central banks are nervous about inflation and that therefore, you know, the European Central Bank with a very strong German influence which has always been about inflation it's been been very much about that but the question arises well what about employment uh, why why aren't the central banks actually concerned about employment and I think that that's one of the one of the the, the big questions for instance the charter of the European Central Bank has nothing about unemployment. So when the Greek crisis occurred, it was all about getting the debt back and all this kind of stuff, and the unemployment rate could go to 40 or 50%, and, and the central bank said it's nothing to do with us, that's not our concern, it's not part of our constitutional mandate. So this is, so this is one of the big issues that is, uh, is posed by this jump from uh, Marx's assumption that world money was going to be gold determined and gold fixated which is going to be universal. My own view is that we're, what we're seeing right now is the emergence of distinctive currency regimes which are associated with different value regimes. And that this is a different world that we are, we're, we're working in. And again, this is one of those moments where, we, where capital has evolved and we have to evolve with it taking up those insights which we can get from reading Marx's Capital and building upon them uh, in such a way as to be able to understand their current conjuncture uh, in, in a more uh, deeply analytical way than is, seems to be possible with contemporary assumptions of economics still being uh, stuck in the free market uh, uh, thinking
2: good good evening professor mm-hmm. my question is related with um, I was I was thinking about dialectics on chapter number two and chapter number three and certain moments I was reflecting on the how the 1844 manuscripts like certain of those ideas are retaken in this part and for instance, I was trying to, to think the difference between a dialectic a center or focus on a class struggle and on the other side, like this change that Marx had after 1857 with the Grundrisse, we trying to understand capital as a movement, as a logical determination. So we find two kinds of dialectics, at least is my reading. This one that is like very center on class struggle, but on the other side, this one like more focus on evolutionary movements. So can, how can we rethink Marxist dialectics from this contradiction that we can find in chapter two and chapter three?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting kind of uh, question because I think Marx, uh, when, he's, when he's writing Capital is, uh, certainly I think uh, has transformed in certain ways his notions of dialectics and his notion of how to uh, approach questions such as alienation and uh, the like. So it is rather different from the uh, economic and philosophic manuscripts. Uh, Marx is striving for what might be called a more objective or objectified understanding in capital. Uh, which is why you're getting this language, which comes back again and again, saying, no, you, know, you you think you're in control, but you're not. The system is in control and, uh, alienation is no longer about, you know, somehow or other you're divorced from your true self or something like that. It's about the fact that the system is in control and you are not. And this is, this is, this is a, a deep, deep challenge to liberal theory. Uh, because liberal theory holds that. I mean, if you go read Hayek and Friedman and all the rest of it, they kind of say, well, basically, uh, you know, they think the highest aspiration of a human society is a society built upon individualism, uh, and freedom, and liberty. And when they ask the question, how is that best, uh, what kind of social order and social system is best equipped to realize that, Uh, for them, it's going to be private property, free markets and free trade. What Marx is showing is private property, markets and free trade are not about individual liberty and freedom, they're about you being actually rendered subservient uh, to this this machine-like, social metabolic process. And you have to therefore find a means to convey how that process works, and I think that Marx is being dialectical in, in this in this framework, but at the same time he's moving to a more process-based understanding of dialectics. It's no longer a logic so much as a process of circulation. So when you get to the CMC becomes MCM, then you're starting to look at the, the process of metamorphosis. And that is a form of dialectical thinking, but it's not the same as a Hegelian logical structure of this kind. It's saying, all right, we're now looking at the process. And, and the, the process positions us as buyers and sellers in such a way that we have certain freedoms. Yeah, we can, I can decide to trade with you or not trade with you, but I can't decide not to trade. And I can't decide on the price either, because the price is going to be determined by processes which are out of my control. So, so Marx's view in capital, in some ways, is much bleaker uh, than is the sort of, uh, if you like, rather personalized utopianism of the economic and philosophic manuscripts. And that uh, the subjectivity which is involved in the economic and philosophic manuscripts gives way to, if you like, the objectivity of, of, of Marx's argument in capital. My own view of this is that you need to bring some of the subjectivity back in so that I would not abandon the economic philosophic manuscripts as Althusser and others do by saying you know they were just him being humanistic and you know and, and romantic and all that kind of stuff forget it we are interested interested only in the real science so the question for me would be we have to actually think about uh subjective states of mind and how do we get to that and in what ways can we connect the 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 dialectical formulations which have shifted in their tone from a kind of a a a simple kind of logical structure to a process-based understanding of what a dialectical process looks like with metamorphoses and transformations going on uh and and spiral forms and organic configurations uh, again, I, uh, if you've noticed, the language in here is often organic. It's about social metabolism. It's about natural met- metabolism. It's, 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 it's about that, which is not there in the economic and philosophic manuscripts. But I think that, that uh, therefore, Marx, is, uh, as almost all of Marx's work, it doesn't, it, it's constantly evolving in terms of of how it how it works and I I, I I take encouragement of that it means well we can keep on it keep on evolving it too if you you want to follow Marx and doing this we'll evolve it in some some further ways i mean in in some ways uh, uh, i take these these minor features where marx talks about uh uh, you know, the transformation of space and time that occurs with, with exchange and exchange relations breaking its local bonds, forging the world market. This is a kind of, again, something that can be, can be expanded upon, but to do that, you need to look at the process and then find the mode of representation, which is going to be adequate to that process, which is nearly always a sort of a process based dialectical, uh form, formulation so i think that the that, that uh i i would i would uh, argue that if you really want to understand or, or work with marx's ways of thinking you work with capital and the economic philosophic manuscripts uh t- together and start to argue look at how how they might relate be kept in creative tension uh with each other and and, and uh it maybe is also because I'm a bit of a sucker for the kind of utopianism of the economic and philosophic manuscripts and and, and in a sense the, uh, the, the, the romanticism that's involved in that I, I I kind of find a lot of that attractive and I certainly wouldn't want to abandon it even while I'm deep into the objective representation of what alienation is in uh, capital which is very different from the alienation as it's described uh in uh, the uh, economic and philosophic manuscripts
2: professor do you mind announcing the readings for tomorrow's class before we continue
1: uh yeah it's be the next three chapters six uh which is four five and six they're relatively short and uh, they're much easier than the money one did people have a hard time with the money one Uh, how many people what Huh? Yes. Is it a bit clearer now? Okay, good. I mean, I mean, the best, uh, the best way to do it is to crash through the whole thing uh, and get out, come out the other side. Like I say, it's, it's 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 easy pickings from now on, you know. I mean, it really is. Uh, but at a certain point, it's useful to go back because I think. Some of the issues which are raised in this money chapter are critical issues, like uh, the relationship between uh, money and value. Most, a lot of Marxist analysis doesn't deal very well with that. It's it's, it's really interesting. The tendency is to kind of just think they, but but they're not they're not the same value and 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 money are not the same and the representation is really clearly doing different things and when he talks about you know prices can actually be determined without any value at all you're seeing that the the representation is free to some degree of constraints imposed by by value even as money is necessary to the formation of the of the law of value. You know, I mean, it's kind of interesting, interesting set of uh, questions, which are very relevant to understanding the contemporary condition. Okay, shall so we leave it there? Or is there any other question? What advice you mean by Would you prefer to just simply read the entire book and come back to My advice to everybody is to, is to get through the book and then go back and read it again. And the second time you have a lot of fun. I mean, the second time is really good. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it really is. Because because part of the problem with, with Marx is, you don't know how the concepts are gonna end up. So you're working with something where you don't know where it's gonna end up. But when you know where it's gonna end up, you see more clearly what it, <laughs> what it means at the beginning. I mean, it's, it's, so I, I, I would... Um, I'm, most, my general tactic in teaching Marx is to crash through it as fast as you can and get to the end and then, then come back and, and, and look at some of these other issues and, 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 and more carefully and you can pick and choose which one you, uh, you, you, you dwell upon. <clears throat> <clears throat>